The Phenomenalist, Design and Racism, Questions and Roundtable, with Alicia Lushula Ajayi, Minha Pham, Hadil Khalil Asali, and Christina Hazerton. I have a question. Uh, Hi there. Uh, Christina, this is an architecture question. Don't be worried, I'm not an architect either. Um, But I think a lot of what you were gesturing towards at the end of your lecture here was, um, I thought about it as in terms of like actual design. And um, like I think a good example is if you walk around here, like you walk around to Bedside, for example, like you will see the houses that would be the examples of targets of broken windows, and then you see these sort of, right next to them, like these very elaborate, they look like they look like the idea of what people thought houses of the future would look like, like mm-hmm. 50 years ago. Um, and so, I mean, I guess the question is open for everybody, but I was, was wondering like how architecture can communicate without actually having like walls or borders or checkpoints, how it can communicate a conversation about race, one that usually is, you know, exclusionary or, you know, is explicitly racist. How, one more time, how can it communicate what without what? How can it, um, I asked this past, how, how, how can and how does it communicate a conversation about race, actually without being explicitly racist, but yeah. it, it, it is in a way. Um, well, I'll take a stab at it, and then if any of I'm sure you guys have things you'd like to weigh on. So, you know, as I mentioned, this comes out of uh, my collaboration. I've been doing housing organizing work for a long time, and I was working with uh, what was a housing group in Skid Row, Los Angeles. So I don't know how many of you have been to the new revitalized downtown Los Angeles renaissance, but if you've been there, then you know where Skid Row is or where it's where people are attempting to squeeze it out and turn it into a new place of a totally gentrified area, lofts, boutiques, hotels, et cetera, et cetera. And so for people who are, uh, you know, confronting this problem of trying to save one of, uh, yes, thank you. Uh, So people who are trying to save affordable housing stock all of a sudden found themselves confronted with this policing crisis, right? And so I think, uh, you know, the book really comes out of exactly this question. How does architecture end up unwittingly reinforcing these larger projects, right? Because what are you going to do? Go to different architecture firms and say, like, you know, you are perpetuating structural violence and centuries of racism by doing your day job? We could do that, but how effective would that be? But I think the bigger question you're trying to ask is, like, how do we all kind of reinscribe these these processes, right? And I think, I mean, that's a political question. And the first step in that question is being able to reckon with the fact that we are daily dealing with and consciously or unconsciously reproducing these broader structures that, like, precede us. So, you know, if you are an architect and you get a hot... uh, you know, job for a new fancy futuristic hotel, like, what's, what's, what's an architecture firm's due diligence? Do they say, who is this displacing? How does this involve itself in the redevelopment of the local area? Is there community input from the people who are being dispossessed or displaced? Like, how do we begin to have those kind of conversations? I don't know. But we're all here on this hot night trying to have a discussion about it. Mm-hmm. I think... Um I could say, I can speak a little to that. Um, I think 
to answer your question is that architecture can't. I think there's been this um, misconception that architecture um, has such an impact that it can stop racism or it can improve poverty. I think we saw a lot of that in the 60s when architects all of a sudden had a moral conscious and they were trying to do public housing and when public housing failed, architects were often blamed, right? Like the architecture was the issue. When really it wasn't just the architecture, I mean, the architecture played a huge part in it, but it was also the policies that allowed for that architecture to go up, right? And so, I mean, I think the way, and this is gonna sound like a plug for my firm, but I, I work for Mass Design Group, and I, one of the things that I've been completely struck by is um, they do a lot of work in Africa, which is an issue in itself we could talk about, but um, a, a lot of the things that I've been really struck by is the level of investment that we put into each one of our projects. Uh, we don't just come in and build and um, walk out. We do a lot of initial research, then we build, and then we do evaluation, and we're actually trying to sell this as a way that all architecture firms should function. Um, so I think I, I think the like speaking to what you were saying, just the level of intentionality and an investment is really important for architects to consider, and I haven't seen a lot of that um, from what I've studied. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe not from an architectural perspective, but just thinking about the colonias, um, just the fact that when an engineer or an environmental person goes out and does an assessment, these communities just remained invisible. They just were not considered. Um, I just, I don't know, I mean, like I ended up after, obviously I ended up resigning from ExxonMobil and went back, when I went back I was with Tejas, which is a, an advocacy group called Texas Environment, uh, Environmental Justice, something, something, I don't know. <laughs> um, but they actually advocate on behalf of um, mainly communities of color that are usually like the first to suffer from the impacts of, so I think, um, I, I still don't know how to get from ExxonMobil's policy of, you know, environmental remediation actually equals say cover your ass to Tejas's advocacy for like the actual people that are that are implemented and how that comes into not architecture but the design of environmental projects. But that was sort of the I mean they were they were, they were just invisible. They just were not not seen. designers perhaps to think against the law, you know, to be always already 
thinking, I know advocacy is very important and you know, certain kinds of rights discourse, et cetera, et cetera, but to think in a larger framework against the law, you know, outside of the state, outside of legal frameworks, and what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, that's, a, that's great, and I, I, I think that's, that's really, that's really right. I think that's that's where the thread is in all of these presentations. Um, a couple of thoughts that I have is the first is that oftentimes, you know, in in terms of copyright, for example, um, people say, well, we just need to expand the law, right? We just need to expand the law and make you know things like you know what sometimes people call cultural appropriation illegal, right? So we just need to expand the law and. What I've discovered is that the law is often the problem, right? So expanding the law means expanding the problem, right? Um, making everything into property, which now can be protected, right, as private property, doesn't actually doesn't actually fix anything, right? It actually just produces more property, produces more commodities, produces um, more um, property owners, right? Um, one of the things that I've been loving recently is all of the ways in which counterfeiters, um, and you know, I put that in quotes, counterfeiters in Asia specifically, like Korea, um, China, um, Korea and China, have been blatantly counterfeiting as a way of um, challenging globalizing processes, right? Of, of, of commodity flows, et cetera, right? So that if, if you know, um, intellectual property laws are meant to be, to be brought into places like China and India, et cetera, um, as a, it's, you know, copyright law, intellectual property, international trade is brought in, is made international because it forces these countries, right, quote unquote developing countries, to play by Western rules, right? So if you want, trade with us, then you have to respect private property, you have to respect our laws. Um, and what they do is the countries, the states say, okay, yes, we'll do that, of course, but there's no enforcement on the ground level because that's how development works, right? The United States was a counterfeit pirate economy before it was a superpower, right? It pirated Europe, and you know, particularly in fashion, pirated everything from Paris, right? Um, so these, there's kind of like, pirating movements, right, where they're specifically, and I think very self-consciously, using the term piracy to take it back and say, well, yeah, because the only way to get through in a capitalist economy is to pirate it, right, is to un overturn it. Um, and so the ways in which counterfeiters are kind of in, a, a friend of mine at, um, at um, Scripps in, in California is looking at the ways in which counterfeiters are taking brand names and just putting them on all kinds of random, you know, copied stuff as a way of kind of um, divorcing the symbolic meaning of the brand and the commodity, right? And, and showing that it's there's nothing underneath it, basically, right? So there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. I teach a class on, um, I was teaching a class on basically the culture of copyright this year. And one of the things that we also discovered is that pirates in the United States also have a very heroic kind of, um, History, right? But all the pirates of, of um, digital digital economy are white men. So you think of people like Lawrence Lessig and you, you know the Creative Commons folks. And so there, in in even in these kind of Creative Commons <coughs> movements, um, 
Asians are still, Lessig has a line in his book, Free Culture, where he actually says, look, I'm not talking about the Chinese, because what the Chinese are doing is just wrong, right? So over and over and over again, even the most progressive movements, Asians are, um, Asians are the racial kind of embodiment of fakeness, right? And that and it's, so it's interesting to me that in Asia is where like that fakeness is kind of being, and you know China is like the fake capital of the world, whatever, but their fakes are oftentimes better than the, the originals, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? They're called super copies. Anyways, so th that's a, it's a very long answer to your question, but it's, um, I really appreciate that question. I appreciate you bring our attention to the limitations of these different sites, right? Law is a site, planning is a site, design as a site. They're all sites, but none of them are the sites. They're all uh, what we call terrains of struggle, right? And terrains of struggle shift with different kinds of movement, right? So my favorite example for thinking about terrains of struggle is a Montgomery bus boycott, Right? First people boycott the bus because the buses themselves are segregated. Okay? You win a victory against segregation on the bus, then the new campaign is about well, who gets to drive the bus. You the terrain of struggle changes. Then it's who gets to own the bus company. Then it's why is segregation existing in society, period. But at each stage, the terrain of struggle shifts, and it shifts in relationship to what kind of victories you win, to who's mobilized. Which is all to say that it, you know you're asking a political question. I think that's important. No, it's an aesthetic question for me. Well, but here's the thing. You know, like I don't think that these like if I were to say, you know, all designers and planners in the room, what you need to do is just have more of a conscious, read my book, and then plan, uh, you know, a, a new development accordingly, and then you've done your job because then you've educated yourself and then you know, tried to put it into practice. It's a very like individuated, singular way of approaching what is a political question. It's like you said, you know, when designers are given jobs, they're embedded into these, bigger, these relations that are bigger than them. So how do you begin to confront those questions if you are really troubled by them? You have to organize with people. And, and, and you have to be able to confront different terrains of struggle and produce new terrains of struggle. I can't really speak to that question because I struggle with that. Um, I find I, I just graduated. I'm in my first job, um, my first real um, dip into uh, working in a firm. And even though the firm is kind of amazing, um, I hate it because of that. <laughs> um, having to play along with the power structures, um, even the internal power structures of the office, and then because. A lot of what we do is so um, politically and socially focused. We um, are constant, and we're a young firm, and we're constantly having to, <coughs> to maneuver um, in that space. And I think uh, what you said is really brilliant. Um, but I also think as, as, a, as, uh, as an African-American woman, when I think about these things too, I think that um, just, there's not an infinite amount of power in the world. Uh, and for things to really change, this power has to be shifted, which means people have to be re ready to receive that power, and some people have to be ready to let go of that power. And I know that's really abstract, but that's just where my head is right now, is how do you get um, people not just to be allies around the cause, but actually shift some of that power to more marginalized.
marginalized groups, and how do I do that as a designer? I just complicated your question like, <laughs> way more than answered anything. Oh, my solution was leaving. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I think for me, like, it became evident that there was a different way of being and viewing these things uh, from the people themselves. I mean, not just the structures that we talk about, but even something as simple as groundwater. You know, I mean, from my perspective, um, geologists would be flown in, like parachuted into South Texas to characterize and figure out why, and figure out this area. And then you come to find out that the people that are like living there and of there, like they just have a completely different relationship with this place. And I think it's the same thing, for me it was the same experience actually meeting the people of the colonies that they don't, you know, they don't need a, I won't say what they need or don't need, but the, I mean, the advocacy group was, is doing important work and um, you know, obviously ExxonMobil's stuff is limited, but I think, you know, you start thinking about like informal economies and just different relationships to the land, you know, not, not viewing it as, as territory or as, as a commodity. There, there was just a different way of, of being. And I guess that's why I decided to come to anthropology, you know, was just to kind of figure out how to take that seriously. I, you know, I just want to come back to the question, the law, you know, and, and there's something that Christina said that really resonated with me when she said that, um, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but she said that um, we don't, we no longer need certain laws because it's already embedded in the architecture, right? We live it, and I think that's really important, right? The law is not just statutes and case law, et cetera. That's not what, and people aren't thinking about these laws as they live their lives, and in terms of copyright, they're so, they're so complex that people don't really understand copyright law. Intellectual property lawyers don't understand copyright law, which, and they'll freely admit that, right? The law is abstract, and it's abstract because on purpose. It's designed to be abstract, so it abstracts actual material realities, right, like racism. So if we never say, you know, um, that, that we're anti-immigrant, for example, but we have laws about national security and public security, et cetera, then it sounds like a good thing, right? So it, it, it abstracts real things. But what, what Christina's point was, which actually is very much um, in line with the things that I'm working on, is when, when the law becomes part of it's, it gets embedded into, for me, you know, to use a, a, a metaphor, the fabric of our daily lives, of our, you know, kind of um, boring shopping, like these things that we do on an ordinary basis, when it gets embedded in us, that when we see Chinese people, we think fake. When we see made in China, we think fake. It's very easy then to say, well, who are the people that we need to police at the trade, um, the borders and customs um, borders, right? Who do we need to look at? What, who are the ones that are possibly, it couldn't be the Thai people being the originals. It ha they have to be the fake, right? And so already in our kind of common sense, what the law has done so well and why it's a problem is that it's naturalized the very things that it was meant to actually, you know, um, make visible so that we can actually, you know, in order to get rid of discrimination, but what's actually done is naturalized because now it's not that, you know, it's not that I'm racist, just, but look at those numbers, those Chinese people, my God, they're, they're, copy, they're copying everything from swatches to, you know, medicine, and so they are, the copyright laws are not about what is real and fake, it is about us versus them, it's about um, who is, you know, um, someone trustworthy and someone not trustworthy, right? It's, it's, these, it's these borders that, that the copyright law tries to blur out, obscure, so we can't see it. 
right? So to go back again, you know, the law is the problem. <laughs> Or maybe the reverse is true. I mean, often these marginalized groups are the experts because they're facing it on a daily basis. You know, I mean, I think people in Ferguson were very well aware of what they were up against and how the city was being funded off their backs disproportionately. That was the rage that took off in Ferguson because people understood that they were being fucked over, right? So I think, you know, I mean, I think it has to be both ways, right? How can architects and planners humble themselves enough to, I'm sorry, I keep picking on you, but I think it's a really good question. Like, so then, so then what? What do you do? But I think making that transmission of information both ways, what are you entering into and how do you let people that are experiencing things actually not pander to them, you know, but, but get some sense of what people are actually confronting so that you understand the stakes of what it is you are building or planning. selling the stuff on the streets for the most part. Um, and it's true to an extent here between what's happening in Chinatown and then, and then what's happening like further, further west of that. You know, it ends up being like really interesting sort of distribution patterns of who's actually selling uh, counterfeit goods. So it's yeah. Interesting yeah. That. It's, it, no, that, that's, that's right. And you know, if you go on Canal Street, right, people always say, oh, Chinese people, but if you actually have ever been there, you know that it's also African immigrants as well, right? There are, of course, Chinese people, but African immigrants. Um, and ever since, you know, the whole thing about Somali pirates, there is certainly a racial narrative about piracy, right, in that sense, too. But just in recent years, it's, it's been Asian, um, so much so that, that African immigrants on Canal or wherever in the world um, are um, are being are being allied that that hit that history and those those economies are being alighted and it, the interesting thing is is that Chinese becomes the signifier right or the sign for for pirates so much so that when Chinese factories are moving to Ethiopia because if you can believe it Ethiopian manufacturing is cheaper even than China right so that China is moving its manufacturing to Ethiopia. The New York Times described Ethiopia as the new China, right? So China becomes this thing for cheap labor, cheap taste, cheap products, cheap production conditions, et cetera. Yeah. I just think along those lines, something actually really interesting to that, that point also is sort of in terms of the racialized narrative. It seems that if, you're, if there's anxieties about manufacturing and production, that's where the Asian labor becomes. That's the counterfeit. That's the piracy. It's about migration and distribution. It's the African body. There's a very interesting sort of bifurcation or a way that these narratives kind of get spatialized uh, in who we're afraid of. Um, yeah, who we're afraid of. Or who we're exploiting. Or who yeah. we're exploiting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, but as Chinese are realized, Chinese people is as afraid of piracy just as Americans are afraid of piracy. I mean, We'll put Chinese as an uh, attribute uh, as opposition to America, and it's not all of a sudden 
action right, against this kind of Western rule. Yeah. Like I interpret really within China, there's no piracy, I mean, uh, intellectual property law. That a Chinese designer, you design something like that, another Chinese designer will copy you. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it becomes not really so heroic situation, yeah. right? So I yeah. mean, in a way, I feel like when we're talking about this kind of, let's say, Eastern model against the Western model, but at the same time, we're going to really see what kind of Eastern model is being Structural yeah, I, yeah, and I and I would just only tweak that to say that I think it's a certain class of Chinese um, citizens, right, who are concerned about piracy, right? Because and the, and these are the Chinese tourists that are going to other places to shop because they want to make sure they're not buying counterfeit. Because in China, you worry about buying counterfeit, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's a it's that's that there's a class argument to be made there. I think there's a class distinction to be made there. But there's a lot of people who choose to buy. I mean, in the United States, everywhere, who choose to buy knowingly or unknowingly, but knowingly choose to buy quote unquote fake products, right? Because even the fake product, a good fake product, can still carry a particular kind of status, right? And that, I mean, this is what fashion is. They're status markers, right? And so, so I, I, I agree, absolutely. But I, w I would just say that it's a, it's a class distinction. worried about opening my mouth and then not being able to shut it, so I'll just make two quick points. The first is that in, we have a you know, few pieces in the book that deal specifically with this, and there are people that are more experts on this than I am, but we have an interview with Arun Kunani, who wrote this fantastic book called The Muslims Are Coming. How many of you have heard of this book? Go buy this book. It's fantastic. The Muslims Are Coming. Um, and he talks particularly about these flows, and one of the, I think, you know, very eloquent points he makes besides tracing you know, the connections between all the different agencies you, you mentioned. He also thinks about the kind of colonial flows and says, you know, how do you think about the sort of commonplace, he, he does this really nice tracing back of what we come to think about as the alternative uh, in this country of community policing, right? What if, what if the police just knew the communities and were responsive? And he says, you know, there's a whole history of colonial counterinsurgency, right? Like you think about the British in Ireland, in Malaysia, right? The, like thinking about uh, social work as an arm of the police, right? And just all these different ways that, uh, I said I was gonna be brief and then I can hear myself going on. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways that that particular, you know, we, we try to address that particular issue. The reason it came up, like the reason this became a planetary project is because in Skid Row, you know, there wasn't just this hypersaturation of policing, but it was also the launching ground for some of these post 9-11 uh, National Suspicious Reporting Act pilot programs. This is not unique. I think Leopold said something earlier to the effect of, you know, like military programs routinely get tried out on the poorest communities in this country, right? Um, 
And, uh, but, the, but that particular connection, you, you know, the, the ways in which these bodies were hyper vulnerable to just all kinds of different testing, and then this gets scaled up as national policy, as military policy, it's terrifying. But it's, you know, like there's a big difference between whether you're thinking about uh, advocacy for poor homeless people in some area versus saying, this is a site of counterinsurgency, and we have to take this whole thing very seriously. So. Mm-hmm. There you go. Especially Absolutely. Ranajigua in the elementary aspects of peasant insurgency in colonial India says, uh, he talks about the anxiety of a regime aware of its own illegitimacy. And I think there's a really interesting way to think about the anxiety that produces a kind of speculative policing, a speculative, uh, you know, drone warfare, a speculative militarism, always trying to predict the enemy before it actually exists and producing the very thing that you're purporting to confront that is, there's such a parallel integrated logic between how capital works, how speculative capital works. It's a similar kind of anxiety. I mean, it's, it's a longer answer, it's something I'm you know, trying to work on a new project about, but I think that those logics have to be understood together, but as centered with this question of an awareness of their own illegitimacy. hopelessness, right? Uh, you know, I mean, we're all complicit in the system by living and breathing and having to figure out ways to pay rent and feed ourselves, right? The question is, what do you do, right? It's just not, you know, there, there's no position we can hold automatically that then produces change, you know? I mean, I'm a professor. There's all sorts of ways where I'm embedded in deeply grotesque things, but the question is, what do I do with that position, right? I mean, the question is, what do we do with any of the position that we're in? You have choices, you have creativity, you have ways that we've even been trained to forget, you know, ways of being in the world, ways of being with other people, planning with people, thinking about bigger questions. So there's nothing foreclosed. 
it's, it's what do you do in the space that you're in. And I totally agree with Alicia's point. I mean, this is like, this is a serious scandal to have, what was it? What's the percentage? 0.2%. 0.2%. I, I think you need both. If, if the question is like, do we be internal or external to like the institution or, or, or whatever? I, I think you need both. Um, I don't think I belong in the internal. I guess that's what you're going to pick it up on. Um, but we're actually working with um, EJI, Equal Justice Initiative out of Alabama. They're a nonprofit um, lawyer group. And with this, we've done a lot of research on, like, they focus on mass incarceration, basically. And, and um, with this, we've um, come across a lot of different people who are interested in this idea of mass incarceration. And um, I'm forgetting the name right now, but there's this one guy who talks about how he, when he decided to go to law school, he wanted to be a public defender um, because he understood that the only way to change the system was from within, you know? Uh, because the public defender is actually the one who establishes the sentencing or, and things like that. Um, so I think there's definitely room for both. Like, we have to have representation in architecture firms um, because how in the world are people going to get, um, especially people in places of power, going to be exposed to different perspectives about how to visualize space? It's absolutely important. Um, but I also think it's equally important to have you know, really grassroots movements that explore different modes of thinking about uh, space and architecture, and I think architecture in general as a profession is really in this kind of transitioning phase where we're allowing a lot of, a lot more avenues, like, you know, research intensive practices is, is, is actually becoming a thing, which is really exciting. Um, and, and like the old school architects are like, that's not even architecture, I don't understand what you guys are talking about. <laughs> but it absolutely is architecture, right? Because it's about, um, we're talking about space in the same ways that they are, which is, um, uh, I think, producing work that looks a lot different. Um, yeah, so. I'd just say, I mean, it's not architecture, but I'd just say that what I found was from moving to the corporation to the university, in a way it wasn't a big move in some ways. Um, and, you know, as you said, that we are always implicated and, and embedded in certain relations of power. But I guess the thing that I would say is, is what I found also in the corporation and in the consultancies when they're thinking about a particular space, it's just so many layers of abstraction. It's just a completely abstract space. There's no people. There's nothing. Um, and I think that's sort of maybe a practice that could be thought of, you know, it, I mean, for, you know, whether it's for architects or for engineers or designers, is how do you bring the actual people and the the realness of the the painting or not the painting, <laughs> the the diagram or the CAD drawing or whatever it is that you're working with? It just becomes so abstracted, and you don't know who you're impacting in the process. So, I, I was just gonna say too that um, you know when we've talked a lot about design. We haven't actually defined racism, and it you know. It, and maybe it's because we all know what it actually is. But just the basic definition is that it's structural, right? So it's not intention, it's not individual, it's structural. And so the question of, you know, what can one person do? I, I actually feel like the best intended people can't do anything, 
right? It's because it's not about intention, because there are a lot of racists who are well-intended, right? There are a lot of liberal racists, there's a lot of progressive racists, right? And so um, I think the, you know, Alicia's really stunning um, statistic and her saying, well, this is why I wanted to be, right? Because you're actually, what she's talking about is not an individual change. It isn't then just because she's now an architect and she's an African-American woman, right? But that because the numbers are so small, her becoming an architect actually has a structural, it shifts the structure, right? Because the numbers are so small. And so I think that we have to remember that um, it's not on one person and it's certainly not on any ethnic group to represent like their community or their interests, right? It's, it's structural and if we can participate in ways that produce structural change and that actually change the system, Right, then, then that's meaningful. But it's not, it's not on you or me or, or any one group of people to do that, right? It's, it, it has to be systemic, right? Getting tired, or? Yeah, we're just getting tired. <laughs> so we're going to have mercy of our guests here. Uh, but I'd like, uh, I'm sure, uh, knowing that you're joining me and uh, thanking them. Thank you. Thank you.